Hey, good morning again. A minute ago I was a beggar, now I'm going to be a preacher. Um, so I want to tell you just a couple of quick things. One thing, we had to cancel the harvest on the trail yesterday because of the rain, but I want you to know what we're going to be doing with the candy. Other than giving, if you're going to have a child here next service, they're going to leave with some candy. But we're also, we're going to take that candy in, in this next week and we're going to go out and do evangelism with it. We're not going to try to get the candy saved. We're going to go out... And, and use the candy as a tool to have a Jesus conversation with people. So that candy's not going to go to waste. Hopefully, and I, I trust absolutely, that people are going to come to know the Lord because of a conversation that happens that begins with that candy. I want to give you, uh, or at least tell you one more thing. If this is your first time here, I want you to raise your hand. We want to get one of these in your hands. And it's funny because we don't have a lot of first-time people that wake up this early. It's only those of y'all that already love Jesus that come at 9 o'clock in the morning. So usually the, give a hand to the 9 o'clock service. Um, uh, I do want to say, though, there's a connection card in the seat back in front of you. And if you want to connect with our church, uh, with, if you have a prayer concern, whatever that may be, if the Lord leads you to come to know him today, let us know on that card and our prayer team also will be back in the back after, uh, actually, this service, the prayer, somebody on the prayer team will be out there because we'll be sanitizing in here. Now, before we get started, I want to preface our, uh, our, the passage that we're going to go through today with a little bit of a disclaimer um, and a little bit of a teaching moment. And I'm going to show you a graphic. It'll be up on the screen in a second to make a point. As a Christian and even as a non-Christian, but in the conversation we're having today. As a Christian, me and you believe in a lot of different things. A lot of different things. Some are essential to salvation. Some are not essential to salvation. If they're not essential to salvation, it doesn't mean they're not important. It means they're not essential to what? Salvation. <clears throat> so get that point, I guess. I believe <clears throat> some of these different things. Like, I believe that biblical baptism is baptism by immersion, not sprinkling. I believe that, uh, that babies should not be baptized because I believe that baptism follows salvation. The order is not baptism and then I get saved. The order is I get saved and then I get baptized. You know, I don't believe, and we're going to talk about this a little today, so if you don't agree with me, it's okay, but don't throw anything. I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, okay? That's all of those things, those three or four that I just mentioned, those are, and I believe those, but those things are not essential to salvation. There are, there, there are a few things that are essential to salvation. That bucket of things is pretty small that are essential. I want you all to track this with me. I believe in God. There's a shocker. That's an essential. There is no such thing as a, well, I don't even know what you would call them, a Christian atheist. There's no such thing, right? I believe that I am a sinner, that I am desperately in need of rescue, and Jesus Christ, who is 100% God and 100% man, it was his death on the cross that paid my sin debt, that he walked out of the grave alive three days later, and, and by the Lord's grace and my trusting faith in those events, he saves me. That's a belief that is essential for salvation. There are that you can't just believe anything and call yourself a Christian. That is essential to salvation. And me and you can disagree on everything else. 
right? But if we disagree on what I just said, we got a problem. There's a problem if you don't believe what is in the bullseye. Are y'all tracking with me on this? Okay. I want you to look at this graphic. And I'm going to call this the scale of certainty. I think I put that at the top. I did. The scale of certainty. I just said that we believe in a lot of different things because we do. We do. But I'm telling you, we don't believe all of those things to the same degree. You may pretend that you do. You may even fuss and argue with people like you do. But you don't, at least you shouldn't, believe everything. Every hill is not worth dying on. Right? So we don't believe every single thing to the same degree. If we talk about uh, one of the things I just said a minute ago, Duncan in baptism versus Franklin, I'm probably about a, I don't know, about an eight or nine on that. I think the scripture is pretty clear. You know, on the, on the I don't know, on any of those things, I am not all the way down here at a 10. If you look at the scale, it's the things that I believe, where it's, if I'm a 10 on something, I hope I would die for it. Does that make sense? Tracking? Okay. You know, I'm not going to break fellowship over somebody that thinks that infants should be baptized. I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to fight about it. I'll talk about it. Why am I not going to argue and fight about it? Because people are dying lost in the streets while people in the church are fighting over stuff like that. That makes no sense. That, and you know what? The devil loves that because he's, he'll get us a little bit off on something that's not... Remember, I didn't say it was unimportant. I said it was not essential. And so the devil loves to get us off track a little bit and fussing about something that is not essential while people are dying lost. What happens to, where does somebody that dies lost go? To hell. And it's real. And it's forever. And while Christians are fighting about, I was going to say dumb stuff. It's not dumb stuff. It's, it's non-essential stuff. People are dying lost. On the Jesus walked out of the grave alive thing, I'm a 10. I'm a 10. There is zero doubt in my mind that he went in that grave, dead, heart wasn't beaten, there were no brain waves, and he came out of that grave alive, I'm a 10. I hope, and I'm just being honest, I hope that if a jihadist had a sword at my throat, I hope that I would die for that belief. I hope that I would. I think that I would. So, look, today we are going to address a few questions that really, really super smart theologians, people way smarter than any of us, have wrestled with and totally disagreed with each other over the last 2,000 years. All right, there's going to give you a little background. There's two sort of basic schools of thought that exist concerning uh, about how we're saved. And there's a bunch of views inside of each one of those two sort of camps. Camp one is known as Arminianism. Arminianism. Y'all ever heard of Arminianism? Arminianism <clears throat> first began with a guy named Jacob Arminius. And people that fall into that camp kind of believe that man plays the primary role in his salvation, that, that man cooperates with God in his salvation, that salvation, of course, is through is through faith in Christ, but we choose on our own volition that we, we choose without anything else, we choose to say, yes, that we drive the train. And I'm talking about kind of the extremes of Arminianism, and I'm going to talk about another extreme in a minute. Most people that hold that view, 
not all, but most people that hold that view say that we can also choose to stop believing and give our salvation back, get a refund or something on our salvation. In simple terms, generally speaking, that salvation is based almost solely on the will of man and not the will of God. Now, camp two is Calvinism, and that comes from a 16th century preacher named uh, John Calvin. And strict Calvinism, which some would call hyper-Calvinism, says that God selected some people for salvation and others for hell, and those that are elected virtually have no say-so in the matter. In hyper-Calvinism, the, the will of man seems to just be forfeited over to the sovereignty of God, that man's chooser really kind of plays virtually no role in it. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminianist. I'm a Jesusist, if that's the right way to say that. Okay? I'm not going to identify myself in any of those ways, but I say what I just said because the kind of the difficult subjects that are in front of us today are going to be, they're, they're what those two camps have, have struggled and wrestled and disagreed with over the years, particularly verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8. And while we will never, ever fully solve the puzzle of salvation, some of the answers that, we can, that we're looking for, we can probably find in those couple of verses. Now, that is a backdrop, I guess. Let me say this. We serve a God who is determined. He is determined to accomplish his will. And he's going to accomplish his will because he's determined to accomplish his will. It's Romans 8, 28 through 30. Divine determination. That's the name of today's message. Divine determination in the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, obviously, and I guess it would be obvious, we're talking about uh, about the determination of God, not Ed's determination, not our determination. And so I believe that when we wrap all this up probably at the end that we're going to see that uh, from these three or four verses and some other scripture that we'll bring in that salvation is something that is produced by God and enjoyed by man. First point is this. We will see determination in his promise. We'll see determination in his promise. Look, my goodness, look at verse 28. And we know. It doesn't say we think. It says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This verse kind of develops the thought from the end of verse 27, which says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints. And when you read the word saints in Scripture, it's talking about believers. So the Spirit intercedes for believers according to the will of who? Of them? No, according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit intercedes for believers according to God's will. And so Paul illustrates here that uh, the Holy Spirit's work jives perfectly with God's will. And it jives perfectly to mature us, to grow us, to bring us into maturity the way that He wants. Now what happened, whatever it is that happened, that, that Paul's talking about in Romans uh, uh, 8.28, may not in and of itself be good. We may not look at it and say it's good, that that felt good, that that tastes good, that that, that, that was pleasant. We may not say that by our definition. Y'all, but, but God's will 
God's purpose. He will make it work out for our ultimate good to meet his ultimate goal for our life. Does that make sense? This verse says that, that, that God works all things together for good. It does not say that, that all things work out. It doesn't say that. Suffering still brings pain. It brings loss. It brings uh, sorrow. And sin still brings shame. It does. But under God's sovereign hand, under his control, the eventual outcome will be for our good. He is always at, at work behind the scenes. Go read. We did a, a series several months ago on Habakkuk. Y'all remember? Habakkuk. There's a guy in our church named Lonnie Freeman that loves to say the word. And he says it like this, Habakkuk. So if you read Habakkuk, it's all about God's working behind the scenes, getting done what he wants to get done. That, by the way, was not in my message notes. I just looked at Lonnie and I, I thought about that. But God's working behind the scenes, y'all, and he is ensuring that even in the middle of terrible tragedies, real pain, real mistakes, that good will result. There's not a period at the end of that sentence. Good will result for those that love him. For those that love him. That promise, and it is a show enough promise in Romans 8.28, but that promise is for believers. That promise is for Christ followers. God does not work all things together for good for unbelievers. He doesn't. And that may sound harsh. It may sound super harsh. This is a promise made to Christ followers. And y'all, that's a tough, this is a tough two or three verses. But I told you two years ago, I'm not shying away from difficult stuff in Scripture. Now, sometimes this working all things together for good, sometimes it happens just like that, and we get to see the results of it. When it happens just like that, it helps us to trust that principle even more because, like, we experienced it. But there will definitely, y'all, be events in our lives where the results for good we won't ever know until eternity. And Paul knew this from his own experience. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to Paul? He's in chains. He's in jail. He says, I know I'm in jail, but that has really served to advance the gospel. He says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then look what he says in verse 10. <clears throat> for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, the last part of verse 28 says, who are called according to his purpose. The Lord called us. The Lord convinced us of our sinfulness. You do know that you will never you will never make it to the foot of the cross until you acknowledge and understand how sinful that you are. So the Lord called us and he convinced us of our sinfulness and he showed us what Christ could do for us and then he helped us to accept him. At the end of, uh, of the day, our ultimate destiny is to be like him. God's design for your life is more than it's more than just an invitation. He calls us with a purpose. He's a purposeful God. He calls us with a purpose in mind. 
We're called to be like Christ and to share in Christ's glory. Let me sum up verse 28 like this. God works all things, pleasant and unpleasant and sinful and, and righteous, all things. All means all. When Paul wrote the word all, it means all. He works all of that for our good. Again, y'all, it does not mean that, that all things that happen to us are good. They're not. Raise your hand if every event in your life you would say has been good. There ain't no hands up because that's not the way it is. Raise your hand if, if, if before you were saved, all kind of bad stuff happened. But after you got saved, then all the pain went away and all the sorrow went away and I've never been sad and I've never been sick. No, that's not the promise. It is all things. And we live in a world, man, there's evil all over the place. It is a broken world and evil is out there. But God is able to put it in a pot and stir it up and flip it around and do whatever he does for a believer's long-range good. And I want you to understand this, and this is a huge principle. God's not working to make us happy. He's not working to make us happy. He's working to fulfill his promise. And I'm not going to say that God doesn't want you to be happy. That's silly. But I'm going to say that God's not primarily concerned with our happiness. Well, why is that? Our happiness is bound by time. Our happiness is bound by circumstance. He's concerned with our eternity. He's not concerned. Now, he doesn't want you to just be a miserable wretch. But, but his, his primary concern is with our eternity. It is. I'm going to say this again too. This promise, y'all, in Romans 8, 28, it can only be claimed by people who love God and called, are called according to his purpose. Those who are called are those who the Holy Spirit convinces and enables to receive Christ. We have a new perspective on life. We took an old set of lens off and put a new set of lenses on. We trust in God. We don't trust in life's treasures. We look forward to the security in heaven not on earth. We learn to, to accept and not resent pain and suffering and persecution. I'm not saying that I love pain. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying I will accept that. I hope that makes sense. Why do I accept that? Because I know beyond all doubt, I would be a 10 on this, that in whatever struggle that I'm in, whatever struggle that you are in, if you are a Christ follower, God is walking the journey with you. Do y'all understand how that is such a big thing? I don't care what, amen, no doubt. I don't care if it's cancer. I don't care if your mama passed away. Whatever that is, the Lord is holding your hand and walking that journey with you. There is nothing that I can personally think of that is more comforting than that, that gives me personally like purpose in life because I know he's walking the journey with me. So number one, there's determination in that promise that's in verse 28. And then number two, there is determination in his purpose. And look at verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now here we go. Now we're going to jump into the tough stuff. Nobody's divided over verse 28. Other than people will misquote it 
or they quote part of it and say, well, you know, God works all things together for good. There's not a period there, y'all. You get that. That promise, again, is for people that love him. Verse 29 and 30, now there's disagreement over. And I admit that these two verses, they bring up uh, questions that I absolutely will not be able to answer to everybody that's watching or sitting here to your satisfaction. Some are going to agree with what I say. Some are going to not agree. Reality is this, that if these were uh, easy questions to answer, um, people wouldn't disagree on them. I would say that 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 is that easy answers to the problems that are posed in those two verses, they don't exist. They don't exist. But I do believe this. These two verses teach us an incredibly precious truth, and that is that God is working to reproduce. He's hard at work, sometimes visibly, sometimes not, hard at work to reproduce the image of Christ in every child of God. And you also understand that every human that has ever lived is not a child of God. You're a child of God if you're a child of God. You're a child of God if you bent the knee and said yes and been adopted into his family. That's a tough statement to make, y'all. But he's working to reproduce the image of Christ in his children. Conformed to the image of his son, verse 29 says. What a glorious truth that is. Like, what a glorious truth. That's an incredible, incredible principle. Now, it is in the how that working is carried out that poses a problem for many people. That's where some disagreement comes in. So this morning, I want to tell you this, I'm not going to settle a 2,000-year-old doctrinal debate. It's not going to happen. But I'm going to try to help us understand that God is working out His eternal plan in the life of every one of His children. I want us, that's what I want us to understand. And these verses speak to the purpose that's mentioned at the end of verse 28 when Paul wrote, called according to his purpose. Number one is this, his purpose, it's based on his omniscience. And that's a big churchy word. All it means is his, his, he knows everything, his all-knowingness. His all, he knows everything, right? There's generally two ways to look at this verse, two ways. One group says that God looked, track this with me, one group says that God looked down through time and saw that who would and saw the people who would be saved, and those are the people that he determined would be conformed to the image of, of Jesus. On the other hand, there are some folks that say that God looked down through time and for reasons unknown to us, known only to him, selected, elected certain individuals to be called to salvation. Either one of those views has problems. Either one of them has problems. If God only predestined those whom he knew would believe, then it looks like God surrendered his sovereignty over to the will of man. In other words, God was somehow, his arm was twisted behind his back. He was forced to accept only those whom he knew would believe. That almost forces, almost, forces God to become a prisoner to my will. And that can never, ever, ever happen. My will will never trump God's will. Right? Okay. So, on the other hand, if God handpicks some people and saves them, somehow even whether they don't 
want to be saved or whether they want to be saved or not, then the free will of man is a joke. It's just a joke. It means that we're just robots who have no say-so in anything. That view paints God as a creator who is cruel, evidently, because he meant for some people to suffer in hell. Clearly, both of these views have problems. Now, let me complicate it even a little more. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. That passage tells us that God, and I think I color-coded it. Yeah, how about that? Y'all feel like you're back in school? Look what he says. He chose us. Black and white, y'all. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He says that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says in love he predestined us. It says that he, we are saved by his grace. It's black and white. How do you reconcile all of this? First, I'd say that no way that man's will carries more weight than God's. No way. I reject that thought beyond all doubt. But I also struggle big time with the view that God handpicks. And I give you this. He's God. He can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. But that he handpicks. Now, now really, I don't really struggle with God handpicking people for heaven. I don't. But the logical consequence of that is that he handpicks some for hell. That's a tough dilemma. Is it not? Can you all say tough? Tough. It's tough. Well, let's look at what the scripture says about getting saved. I'll give you a couple of principles. You can write them down. Man does not initiate salvation. Man does not initiate salvation. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we're dead. Does it say we're sick? No. Does it say we're paralyzed? No. It says we're dead. We're dead in our sin. Because of that, salvation is dependent on a sinner being called by God, being a sinner being called by God. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it always begins, no matter what, it always begins with God taking the first step. Second principle is this. Christ's death was for the sins of all men. And I used to struggle with this. Honestly, I did. Because I thought, why doesn't everybody say yes? Like, why didn't everybody say yes? We're going to address that too. 1 John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation or the, or the atonement. He makes atonement for our sins. And it says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he died for the whole world. And then Romans chapter 10, John 3, 16, Ephesians chapter 2, tells us that only those who trust in him... Only those who have faith in him and say yes are saved through the blood that was shed on the cross. And then you cannot, y'all, you cannot escape the fact that believers were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We just read it in Ephesians 1.4. Wait a minute, though. The Bible says whosoever will may come in Romans chapter 10. In John 3.16 it says... Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever, there's plenty of whosoever passages. Y'all, it makes my head want to blow up. You know the little emoji with the head? That's me right now. My head wants to blow up. And so i got to figure out some. The, the bottom line maybe, the best way that my little brain can begin to get my arms around it is this. That Jesus died for the, for the sins of the entire human race. 
that his gift of salvation is freely offered to men everywhere. However, these men will not want the gift unless they are specifically called by the Holy Spirit to receive it. When God calls someone to salvation, he moves in their life in such a way that they come to want what he wants. God is absolutely sovereign in the matter of salvation, just like he's sovereign in every other little area of our life. Imagine it like this, and this may be a terrible analogy, but I'm going to do it anyway. If two men are playing chess, one of them is a master. He is the master chess, he's the chess master. And he knows thousands, maybe millions of ways to start a game, strategies to use during the middle of the game, and he knows how to get to, to the end game. And then the other dude, the other person playing chess is a rookie, and he's just blindly making move after move after move. And as the game progresses, the master is skillfully using every move that his rookie opponent makes. And his rookie opponent is using his chooser to make all these different moves, right? The master is using every one of those movies, uh, movies, every one of those moves to get his opponent into a position where there's no other alternative but for him to surrender his king to the master. So the master has has brought his opponent to a place where they share the same will. That may have been a terrible analogy, but it's one of the only ones I could really think of because it does represent that, that, that God's sovereign will is fulfilled while man's will is not violated because I don't think God is ever going to violate our will. He's not. I'd just be a robot. And he could have created us that way, y'all. He could have just created us and said, you are a robot and you will love me, period. He could have done that. He chose not to do that because he has a chooser too. And his chooser is bigger and he doesn't have an appendix for it to be near, so I don't know where it is. But he could have done that, y'all, but he didn't. He works in our lives to bring us to a place where we will surrender to his will. Now, here is the big fat elephant in the room. And I mentioned it a little bit a minute ago. Why doesn't he do that with all men? Raise your hand if you got an answer to that. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. It is an unsolvable mystery. Salvation is for all men, but no man can be saved apart from the call of God. And like, y'all, I wish I could, I wish it was super black and white. I wish that I could make it black and white. But, but it's, just, it's just not that way. And I personally, I can't take my brain any further than God's will is going to be done. It is going to be done. And so it's based on his knowing everything. And then number two, it's based on his omnipotence, another churchy word, but all that means is he is all-powerful. All-powerful. The end result is that God's desire is to make us like Jesus. Verse 29 says, this is what we're predestined for, to be conformed to the image of his son. And that word predestined, it comes from a word that really means to, to mark off the boundaries ahead of time. To mark them off ahead of time. Before we're even born, the Bible says, God already determined that we'd be saved and that we would be bear the image of Christ. His overarching, big flyover, big purpose in salvation is to to remake us in the image 
of his son for everyone who believes. Verse 29, Jesus is called the firstborn. We get our word prototype from the word that's translated firstborn. So Jesus is our prototype. Just as he is, so will we be. He conquered death, so will we. He is glorified, so will we be. He's holy, so will we be. He inhabits heaven, we will too. Well, how do I know all that? Like, how do I know all that? Because we're told here that he foreknew us. He foreknew us, that we, he predestined us. Now, verse 30, what does it say? It says, now, those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. Remember, justified is just to be made righteous in front of the Lord. Those he called, those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He starts and he finishes. Whatever he starts, he finishes. He is not going to let us go, y'all. A major takeaway from this is in Jesus, we are absolutely secure. Our salvation is secure. There's assurance, huge assurance in that. What God starts, he's going to finish. Verse 28 is a, is a, it's a promise, and it tells us that God is working out his purpose in us. What's his purpose? He's transforming us into the image of his son. Why do all that work and then just kick us to the curb? That makes no sense. Verse 29 tells us that he has determined and decided that we will be like Jesus someday. It's a done deal. Verse 30 uses several words uh, about that journey. And every one of them is in the past tense. We were predestined, past tense. We were called, past tense. We were justified or declared righteous, past tense. We were glorified, past tense. Y'all, in the mind of God, it's all happened. In, in God's view, in God's eyes, we're already with him in heaven, Ephesians 2.6 says. We're already glorified. God is not bound by time the way we are. Let me give you this little final word, I guess. I believe about this subject. I believe that the entirety of Scripture teaches that if you're saved, you're saved. If you're saved, you're saved forever. If you've been born again, you can't be unborn again. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever. And I understand that every Christian doesn't believe that. And you know what? It's okay. That's not essential for salvation. I believe the entirety of Scripture, that's what it teaches. On the scale that we talked about 30 minutes ago, I'm probably about an 8 or 9. I'm not going to die on the hill, but I'm pretty strong. Why am I not going to die on the hill about it? Because people are dying lost out there. I'm not arguing about it. But that's what I believe. We're going to start in verse 31 next week. But verse 31 asks a question that may be the place to land today. What then, Paul writes, what then shall we say? What then shall we say about these things? How about, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen. How about, here's my life, have your way? How about that? Listen, y'all, in this world that we live in, we are never going to fully understand the way that God does the thing he does. We are never going to get all the workings of salvation all figured out. We're not going to be able to cross all the little T's, dot all the little I's, but we sure can find assurance in it. In this life, everything doesn't neatly fit into some little box from which you can pull a note out 
and explain everything and understand everything just perfectly. It's not like that. But here's what I know. I know that God is absolutely sovereign, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is the king of kings, that he is on the throne, that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. I'm a 10 on that. I also know that I have free will. I also know that I have a chooser, that I have to say yes to his offer, that I have to accept the offer on free will. I'm also a 10. Can I explain how those two things work perfectly together? I can't, but I know I'm saved, and I know I'm not going to lose the salvation because I can't, because he is not going to put me to the curb. I can't be unborn again, and I'm not going to fight and fuss and argue about it while people are dying lost, and you shouldn't either. Maybe you remember, this is a great image of, of God's sovereignty and man's free will happening quickly together. And some of you may remember 2015 in Libya, 21 Coptic Christians, they were Christians from Egypt, had their heads cut off on a beach in Libya. ISIS terror, uh, terrorists did it. There was a bishop in Chicago, his name was Demetrios. He wrote in the Wall Street Journal, he said, these Coptic Christian hostages were executed for no other reason than their faith in Jesus Christ. As horrific as the episode was, it also offers inspiration and testimony to the power of faith in Christ. He said these 21 men executed that day were itinerant tradesmen working on a construction job. And the, ex ex uh, the executioners demanded that each one of them identified their religious allegiance. And Demetrios went on and he said, given the opportunity to deny their faith in Christ, all of them, all of them had their heads cut off. They all declared their faith in the Lord and they had their heads cut off. But one of them, one of them was not from Egypt. He was from some other African country. And he was not a Christian when he was captured. But on that beach, on his knees with a hood over his head, when he was asked, when he was asked the question, he was challenged by them to declare his faith. He said, their God is my God. And they cut his head off. Now think about that. That is an image. God clearly called that man. And that man clearly chose to say yes in the face of a sword at his neck. Y'all, Satan always attempts to turn good to evil. And God will always spoil that party and find a way for a believer to turn the evil into good. It is what he does. And if you're saved today, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen. And if you're not, but you want to be, if you have the want to, to be, you can. If you have the desire to be saved, you can be saved. And that desire and that want to is the Holy Spirit calling you to come. If he's tugging at your heart right now, if you're watching or if you're here, then come to him and be saved. Just tell him, here's my life, have your way. That's all it is. Acknowledge today that you're a sinner and say yes. You don't have to explain all this theology stuff. All I know is I'm busted and broken. He saved me. Like, I, that's enough. That's enough. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that I say yes to your offer. I do acknowledge that I'm a sinner and in need of rescue, Lord. And I believe that you died on that cross to save me. And I ask you right now to save me. In Jesus' name, amen.